Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is Johan Norberg, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and a historian of ideas. His new book is Open, the Story of Human Progress. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Johan. Thank you very much. It's the opening days of 2021, and many people have been swearing off 2020 as the worst year ever. But you've written that maybe we should look at 2020 differently if we have a little bit broader perspective. Like, So can you give us a optimistic take on this year that we just went through? Well, I can try. Uh, but obviously, from my perspective on, on openness, it's been a bad year because we suddenly stopped flying, traveling, trading, meeting with friends and relatives and consumers and shops and, and so on. And that has a devastating effect on people's lives, on the economy and uh, on indicators such as poverty. On the other hand, we've also seen some spectacular uh, cooperation across borders when scientists have cooperated faster than ever to come up with uh, new ways of dealing with the vaccine and uh, dealing with the virus and coming up with a vaccine in, in a matter of months. And heroic work uh, when it comes to entrepreneurs and businesses just putting food on our shelves when the world seemed to be closing down. So if I were to summarize 2020, I need to look at both these things. The net result of 2020 is both the, the bad aspects and the good ones, the closed and the open. And then what I do is I turn to statistics and data to see what comes out on top. And obviously, it's not been a good year, but how far back in time did we travel when it comes to indicators on human well-being, such as GDP per capita, extreme poverty, child mortality. Well, it seems like we've moved back in time around four years. So the statistics is preliminary, but um, according to some projections, it seems like this year, 2020, was a little bit better than 2016, but a little bit worse than 2017. And only three years have in human history have been better when it comes to indicators on of human well-being like this. And those are the past three years, 2017, 18, and 19. So in the great scheme of things, I think it's one up for science, technology, innovation, business, and trade, because uh, we've come so far that even a horrible virus like this, the pandemic and the shutdown, only throws us back in time some four years. Do you worry, though, that that four years isn't just a like we've reset to 2016 and now we just start ticking up again, but that it might be, you know, the 2021 might be even worse or that it takes us a long time to get back up to where we were four years ago? Yes, I'm worried about that. And I think that depends on our choices. It depends on whether we are trying to return to open societies and open economies or or whether... Um, authoritarians and big governments uh, see this as a good crisis not to waste. We've seen there's been a terrible backlash politically in 2020, where lots of governments have taken greater powers, um, more restrictions, uh, more fiscal power. And if they 
there's often this ratchet effect where they might return some of those powers to citizens, uh, but not all of it. And in that case, there is a risk that the backlash that we already saw against globalization and open societies, that that will be reinforced because of this pandemic. And that's the thing that worries me the most. Getting to the book and the the title, especially the, the concept and title of your book is sort of, it's wonderfully simplistic and complex at the same time. And you know, there's kind of two sections, there's open and closed. Um, but in a, in a general sense, why just the word open as the title for your book? Well, it actually, the Swedish version is open closed. <laughs> so we've got both aspects there. My British publisher preferred the uh, to focus on the openness because that's the prime mover of world history. And all the rest is just uh, backlashes and reactions against that openness. Uh, because the, the key idea is that the thing that uh, creates, that gives human beings our the, the role that we have in the world, why we dominate the planet is that we are, we're good at cooperating, at, uh, at being open, finding new common ground with strangers and find ways to cooperate and trade uh, when it comes to favors, trust, goods and services in a way that creates mutual benefits and uh, makes it possible for us to, um, to solve more problems than we would all by ourselves. And yet at the same time, we're not always comfortable with that. And we're always uh, concerned about the risk of other groups cooperating even better. So we're, we're very quick at, at uh, dividing the world into us and them. So there's the reaction and it has launched, launched a thousand uh, authoritarian movements in, in world history as well. But, but it all starts with openness. How, I guess, new is openness? Like if we look way, way back, were ancient peoples, earlier civilizations open in a way that we would understand it today? Well, yes and no. Perhaps not in the way that we would understand or appreciate uh, today, but uh, because we've had more warfare and uh, less freedom historically than we have in this era. But I would say that uh, Homo sapiens starts with openness. That's the thing that divides us, sets us apart from most of the uh, the rest of the animal kingdom. And we can see that when we look in to a mirror and we realize that we have the whites of our eyes, which makes it uh, possible for people to uh, see where we turn our attention uh, because suddenly the the cornea is, uh, is transparent to, to everybody else. That's not the case with our chimpanzee cousins or, or, that, or other mammals. They have brown in their eyes so as to hide it from others. At some point in our very early history, our ancestors um, got more out of broadcasting their attentions to to others. Whereas the chimpanzees, if they saw a potential uh, prey, they wanted to hide it from others so that they wouldn't find it first. Well, for our human ancestors, uh, if we saw a potential prey, it made sense for us to share that attention with others, uh, cooperate with them, surround them, throw stones at them, and then we have a larger 
total sum of wealth to divide afterwards. So in a way, it's as old as mankind. And we can actually see archaeologists have found uh, tools made of uh, material uh, that uh, comes as far as... Um, 88 uh, kilometers away uh, 300,000 years ago because we, we know that it's obsidian, it's volcanic glass, it can only come from a few particular sites. So when archaeologists find this, they say that we must have had long-distance trade networks uh, as early as we had Homo sapiens, basically. It's a wonderfully powerful idea because it's almost that we trade... We can trade ideas differently than, say, uh, chimpanzees can or, or dogs, and, and that essentially human progress comes from the ability to share ideas, communicate those ideas, and cooperate together. And if you kind of throw those three things into your into your mixing bowl and stir them together, you get unbelievable growth that is not possible just through pure biological evolution, and that's kind of the bottom line, it seems like. Quite right. Suddenly we have a cultural evolution instead. Rather than if we have a mutation in animals that makes it easier for them to hunt, it takes lots of generations before that becomes a dominant trait. Whereas for human beings, if we, if someone in our group or neighboring tribe come, stumbles upon a better way to hunt, uh, they it suddenly moves at the speed of light, basically. We see it and then we imitate it. And that means that even though we, we don't have many great natural traits compared to many other animals, we're not that fast, uh, we can't fly, we're pretty bad at swimming, uh, we're not that strong, no claws and so on, but we do have something else. We do have each other. <laughs> so if someone stumbles upon a better idea, we can all share it. So we don't have to reinvent the wheel. It's enough with one person doing it. And that makes everything else possible. Is this view of the free exchange of ideas leading to progress, perhaps though maybe a bit Pollyannish? I mean, the, the 20th century was filled with horrific events that were in a sense the result of terrible ideologies, which are just ideas spreading around the world. Communism and fascism and so on led to, you know, unimaginable suffering. So is it that openness is always good, or is it just that sometimes if the right ideas spread, it's good, but if the wrong ideas spread, it's bad? Well, obviously, yes. If we can share ideas, uh, we can share awful ideas in an instant as well, by the speed of light as well. And that means that we're uh, not just the, the nicest of species, we're also the nastiest of, of species in a way, because we can systematically um, uh, adopt bad ideas and put them into... Um, malpractice on an industrial uh, scale. So it's uh, for, for good and ill, we can do more things than any other species. Uh, what I would say is that um, the reason why, or one of the reasons why we have these terribly destructive ideologies is that I think that in, in, at 
the heart of it, they are reactions against openness. Because historically, and you're right, just focusing on cooperation and, and exchange and trade, that's a little bit Pollyannish. There's something else. Uh, we often did it within the tribe. Sometimes we exchanged with uh, strangers as well, as early as 300,000 years ago, long-distance trade networks, but we find something in common, some cue that told us that we can trust these people. But at the same time, if there was another cue telling us that they're not loyal to us, they might be a threat to us, that was incredibly dangerous and we had to be oversensitive to that because not reaction reacting to it uh, could be the end of our lives so this creates a, a this uh, distinction between openness and, and closed in a way coming from our ways of cooperating and it also comes from the very basic fact that it takes hard work to cooperate to go out there and to hunt and to gather and to build and to defend your tribe if someone does not want to put that hard work in but wants to reap the rewards that's a threat to us as well so early on we sort of <laughs> large parts of our brains are are focused on finding out whom we can trust and uh, to uh, basically talk about our neighbors can we trust them are they good workers are they decent and so on. And if not, we had to react to that instantly as well. So both these things, the threats from other tribes and from free, from free riders within the groups and raiders uh, from without, we had to be very quick at dividing between us and them. So it's openness creates lots of opportunities and chances everywhere, but we're also very completely obsessed with trying to find out whether there's a, a major threat coming from another group. And that, I think, is the basis of, of most of the collectivist ideas, uh, treating relationships with the others as a zero-sum game. And if they are successful, it's a threat to us. As I was reading your book, I was picturing uh, this sort of idea. It's a, it's a conversation almost within ourselves as a species, the open part and the closed part, almost like those cartoons where someone has a devil on one shoulder and, a, and an angel on the other shoulder, and they're looking back and forth between them where the, someone is saying, you can be open and you can achieve all these things. But the as you pointed out, the openness can breed closedness. Um, and I mean, I guess probably it's maybe somewhat obvious, but like that the genesis of that idea, it seems like that's been happening a lot recently. I mean, and so maybe that's one reason why you wrote this book now is that now it seems like our openness has generated a lot of closeness in response. Yes, because I think that we are basically at some level uh, very good at cooperating, at finding mutual ground with strangers and uh, people from other countries, uh, but at the same time, we're also uncomfortable with it. Uh, it doesn't take much to make us concerned. And since this plus some game in a, in a major way, on a, especially on a global scale, where we see in our own lifetimes uh, economic growth that's so rapid and innovation so that our lives improve simultaneously for different groups, for different countries. That's a very new phenomena, and it's it's wonderful that we've got that. Uh, but unfortunately, that's not where our 
instincts and our fears and many of our belief systems come from. They come from the earlier era when oftentimes relationships with other tribes were zero-sum. And this creates a basic mismatch between our our brains and the world that our brains have created because we look at China and they are making rapid progress and immediately lots of people are thinking that we must be the ones who lose out or immigrants getting jobs here we think they took uh, our jobs or the 1% are getting richer all the time and we assume that it must come from our pockets in that case and yes right now we're living with that we we've suddenly seen the return of on the left a kind of redistributionist form of populism and on the right a nativist form of populism and they both adhere to the same kind of uh, reptilian brain pop uh, zero sum uh, attitude we've been speaking about this like this is a the the draw towards openness, but also these kind of reactionary closeness that can come from it in, in like a uniform. You know, we all have this, but it strikes me that openness is one of the the standard psychological traits that gets measured. You know, when you're doing personality studies of people, and that we find that openness to new experiences and all the things that we have fallen under what we've just been discussing varies a lot from person to person. And so I'm curious how we deal with not a world where, you know, everyone kind of has the same baseline openness versus closeness, but where we have to essentially live together as people who some of us may be incredibly prone to openness. You know, we were excited by it. It it's what we want more of. And then other people who are going to be necessarily much more reactionary? Like, does this non-uniformity of openness complicate things going forward? Yes, it does complicate uh, things in a way. Uh, openness to experience is, as you say, it's a, a psychological trait, and there might be a genetic ground to much of it. It's related to things like intellectual curiosity, a preference for variety and uh, new experiences generally. And if you or strong there, obviously you're going to be excited by an open world full of surprises. And if you're not, you'll not be as, as happy with it. And we might see the beginning of a certain um, change where people sort themselves out according to this um, urbanization and migration is obviously led by people who are open to new experiences, whereas it's easier to stay uh, behind if if you're not. And um, this complicates matters. My book, uh, in my book, I'm trying to avoid going too much into openness to experience as a psychological trait, because it's more about the openness of institutions, not of individuals. Because um, anybody, no matter what kind of, uh, of uh, no matter what your psychology looks like, uh, the, the society you live in is going to give you more opportunities and a better life if the institutions are open to surprises, uh, new technologies and um, new goods and services constantly. Uh, but obviously the reaction to it is will be strongest among those who prefer some form of stasis. How do we find that middle line, though? Because it's, it's interesting say, for, for example, free trade, where 
on one level, we could say, look, yes, you lost your job as a factory worker in the Rust Belt, for example, because someone has a job in Mexico or Asia or wherever. And say, you have to understand that this is a good thing. Telling someone this is a good thing it seems like a hard sell. And it also seems like a hard sell to be like, you should care as much about someone you don't know in Asia as you do about someone you don't know in America, if you are American, that seems like a really hard sell too, that there's a reason maybe that Americans and Swedes and whatever nationalities maybe care more about those people near to them than they do about distant people just because we we don't have an infinite system of care. We have to kind of choose. So it seems like a hard sell when it comes down to it, especially on something like free trade. Oh boy, yes, <laughs> definitely trust me on this one. It's a hard sell. Um, you know, there, one poll showed a couple of years ago that a large majority of Americans would happily eliminate a thousand foreign jobs to protect a single American job. And um, if you were equally concerned about everybody's life chances, that's obviously absurd. Uh, but few people are and they are most interested in what happen what happens close to them geographically and culturally uh, so and, and i don't think that will really change some people talk about how we could m- might sort of educate ourselves into a broader more global concern and yes to some point i think we already have we don't just look at our local tribe or our village but to other villages and other tribes as well as long as they share some cues with us and so we're moving through i think uh, thanks to things like uh, the media i think fiction the fact that we read about others and realize that they are they uh, if we uh, that, that they share uh, traits with us uh, i think markets helps us to understand and care about what others are interested in as well uh, but i don't think we will get there all the way so i think the way to sell a thing like free trade is to explain that you know if you sacrifice happily a thousand foreign jobs to protect a single American job. The problem is that your trading partner, uh, Mexico or Sweden, uh, would happily sacrifice a thousand US jobs for one job back home locally. And therefore, in the end, the net result would be a, a a net loss of 2,000 jobs to protect two jobs in these places. So it's basically mutually assured economic destruction. And that's one reason why our institutions should be, in many ways, a way of tying ourselves to the mast and make sure that our, our tribal concerns don't make us do counterproductive things that hurt ourselves, like destroying the economy of others, and so also our own economy. How do you deal with, I guess we'll call it like the China problem. So as we're recording this, there's a op-ed in I think the New York Times making the rounds where the author argued that, you know, yeah, China has, Chinese government does some pretty bad stuff, but they've managed COVID better. And so people in China are able to live their normal lives in a way that us Americans aren't. And so therefore maybe China is better than we thought it was. And and that kind of argument seems to be pretty common in in variations that, you know, yeah, you say openness is great, but look at this place, China, that is in 
all but a handful of ways very closed and seems to be very successful. I've often heard this when I talk about openness, that the counter-argument is China, because they seem to be doing well without our kind of the kind of openness that I'm talking about. I would say, I would counter and say that China is the historically is the perfect example of why openness works and closed systems don't work. And if you bear with me in a sort of a very condensed and uh, a little bit simplified version of, of Chinese history, um, China 1000 years ago had Martians landed on, on planet Earth uh, and thinking about where will the Renaissance, the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution come from. They would have picked, I'm pretty sure, China. Uh, Song China at that time was the most developed economy and culture. Perhaps the Abbasid Caliphate could have competed in, in certain ways, but economically, definitely China was was way ahead. They navigated with a nautical compass, fought with gunpowder, and they printed books with a um, printing press. The three inventions that Karl Marx thought were unique to the European bourgeoisie when he wrote in the 1860s. So they had something going for it. And what was that? It was a fairly, relative to other cultures at that time, open society with uh, open markets uh, connected through uh, trade and uh, with strong property rights for farmers who innovated rapidly. And this created uh, the, the greatest civilization on earth. It was destroyed eventually and specifically after we had the uh, Ming dynasty taking over. And the problem with the Ming dynasty was that it basically 500 years later, it uh, built a wall against the neighbors and started trade wars with everybody else and disliked innovation and openness and surprises and to make China great again. But that was the start of 500 years of stagnation in China. So it, and it, and, uh, Later on, the Qing dynasty, the, the Mao Zedong's uh, communist version of, of uh, authoritarianism and closed ideas, it all destroyed China until it began to open up again in the early 1980s and uh, specifically opening up the economy to surprises from farmers who secretly privatized their land so that they started to produce more and innovate village markets. And uh, eventually, the Chinese leadership said they realized what was going on and put their stamp on appro of approval afterwards when they already had seen what had happened. And that was the start of very rapid um, development in China. But that was led by the private sector, by the grassroots capitalists all around China, not by the, the central authorities. And if they ever assume that they were behind it, I think they'll, they'll pay for it. And that's what happens right now with Xi Jinping. There are things that that kind of authoritarian leader is leading China back into more closed minded society. Um, it's possible to do things when you know exactly what you want to accomplish. If you want to put farmers into a factory, you can do that. If you know eventually what to do about a, um, a, a with people who suffer from a particular disease, you can do that with strong uh, authoritarian measures. But you're not open to surprises, and it's not open to 
innovation. It's not open to the strange things that could happen. For example, a, a new virus appearing, uh, because then people are afraid to speak out. And if they do, they are, the police come and, and get them. So, and, and there's a limit to what you can do with that kind of system, because eventually all the growth culturally, economically, technologically is going to come from surprises. And um, Xi Jinping has shown that he doesn't like surprises. And if you surprise him, you end up in jail or your IPO is suddenly blocked by the Chinese authorities. Well, in that case, that growth, that innovation is going to peter out. It's interesting. You referenced the make, you said, make China great again. And that that phrase, of course, we know where it comes from. But the, the interesting word in that that phrase, whatever country you're talking about, is again, where you write interestingly about that kind of nostalgia that can lead to the kind of closed or authoritarian policies. And, and specifically, when were the good old days? Because I, I seem to notice, and Aaron and I have been actually talking about this for 20 years, that people seem to think that the good old days were when they were between 16 and 24, which, you know, seems like quite a coincidence that everything was so awesome then. TV was better. The country was better. Uh, books were better. Movies were better. Um, and if, if everyone thinks that, then that seems to say something about what nostalgia is. Quite right. And that's what you see when you look at history and specifically difficult, uh, di different civilizations. Uh, there's always this temptation to go back to some, something that seems more natural, something more, uh, real. Whereas uh, nowadays people are behaving strange, um, strange ways. And it's always a couple of decades, uh, back in history. And then when you talk to, historians about it it seems like you can continue to do that all the time i think this is a you know there's this woody allen movie midnight in paris you want to return to paris in the 1920s and by a uh, suddenly surprisingly you're there but you realize that in the 1920s in in paris they wanted to go back to the 1890s because that was the belle epoque and then when you talk to historians you can go back in time all the way to ancient Mesopotamia 5,000 years ago, uh, pretty soon after mankind invented writing, they began to write down uh, texts about how nowadays children, they just don't respect their elders and the, the politicians, they're corrupt and business people are robbing us off. And I think there are many reasons why we have this kind of nostalgia that's often used by politicians and demagogues for their uh, preferred um, uh, version of the past. Uh, but but one of them is this personal uh, experience, the personal nostalgia that we all share. I mean, I think that the best music ever produced was obviously in the mid-1980s when <laughs> we have the uh, golf bands and the electronic bands like Depeche Mode and Sisters of Mercy. Nothing could ever compare itself to that again. And that's what everybody else thinks as well about their own um, basically teens to mid-twenties or something like that. Uh, Douglas Adams of um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy fame, he, he once um, wrote down three rules about how we react to technology. And I think that sums up how we react to basically our society, how the economy works, politics, and, and new ways of communicating. And the first rule is that anything that's in the world when you're born is just 
the natural way the world works. But two, anything that's invented between your, say, 15 and 35 is new and exciting, and the parents, they just don't get it, but this is the, the new thing. But then we have the rule number three, and that's anything invented after your 35 is against the natural order of things, and uh, we should probably ban it and go back to the good old days. I, I wonder, too, how much this is an effect of openness itself, because post, say, the printing press – and and so the the ease of spreading information, any open society in the ways that we've been describing it is going to be an information-dense society. You're going to have access to all sorts of things from the fiction that we described to what's happening in other parts of the world to history to so on. And And it seems like, yes, we do get nostalgic for – the the world of our youth, whether that's the exciting inventions or, you know, when we were 10, when we had no worries in the world. So in retrospect, that feels like there were no worries in the world. Um, but at the same time, it seems like there's also a, a sense in which the more open we are, the more access we have to the way things are elsewhere or in the distant past, the more we can kind of latch on to that. So I'm thinking of we go through periods of like, revival nostalgia for say like right now it's the 80s with stranger things and related stuff and and i i recently came across an article written by a probably person in their early 20s saying you know yes like the broadband internet that we have right now is really cool but really the golden age was was dial-up modems, which this person clearly was not old enough to have really used, just dial-up modems because it was like, it was essentially the internet version of the slow food movement, right? Of like, we couldn't, we couldn't just like flit around and we had to be more conscious and mindful about what we were consuming and so on. Um, this is the worst so, hot take I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> I, I mean, I miss the dial-up sound, but that's about it. Um, but, that's the worst you know, but idea. Like, this, this idea that we can kind of because we have so much information available to us, we can construct versions of the imagined past. This also shows up in like Catholic kind of trad Catholic circles of if we could only go back to the time when everyone lived under the power of Rome, you know, that would be a better world because they've, they've constructed these kind of false rosy pictures. So is there, is there that sort of a potential feedback loop where the more open we have, the more ability we have to construct imaginary closed worlds that we want to then kind of force upon others? I definitely think there's that. Um, I can see how easy it is to construct a nostalgia by proxy in a way by just creating uh, the um, taking the best parts and dusting them off and uh, that dial up modem sound and then you can imagine that it was entirely uh, better in in so many ways on the other hand i think that perhaps this is a safe space where we can have nostalgia in a way i don't think that nostalgia is bad in itself i think this is a way to connect with history it's a way to uh, build a personal narrative uh, as well and to connect with your ancestors and i think uh, to a certain extent uh, we need that uh, the problem is when we start to create f the, the kind of fictional uh, nostalgic politics where we think that we have a golden age that we could return to by forcing everybody to 
to live in this way and reenact that kind of uh, of civilization and um and the thing is when you when you look at different civilizations they all have uh, impressive uh, pasts we've had golden eras in almost all civilizations but interestingly they were created the things that people look back at uh, is the period that was in almost every instance obviously there are exceptions uh, the period when they had the most rapid innovation and change and uh, being open to new influences from from other parts of the world as well uh, because that creates this kind of uh, of blend this melting point where the new fascinating uh, things that uh, that we we still cherish to a certain degree so i think that um it's true that there were good old days in the past in a way uh but that was only because the conservatives at that time lost out and we suddenly saw new influences in those societies those cultures those religions uh, that were condemned by the nostalgics of that era openness does have these problems that we've talked about like and some of them might be ones that we have to take quite seriously and you write about this in the book with envi- especially environmental destruction possibly climate change where we do have a system of openness that is maybe not guided by constraints or it's not constrained enough. So how do we kind of mitigate some of those harms that we even acknowledge from openness, uh, such as climate change? Well, if we focus on on climate change, we, um, we know that we don't know where the solution is going to come from. And that's the case with many of the problems that we're facing today. And therefore, the, the the solution is a meta-solution to make sure that as many brains as possible are hard at work coming up with their own ideas as much as possible connected with others so that they get the, um, uh, the benefit of all their knowledge about how to deal with this. And this is really, you know, in, in programming, we have this saying that the more eyeballs that look at the code, uh, the, the more shallow the bugs are because someone is going to, going to solve them. And this is really how to deal with the, the major problems as well. Make sure that we have many eyeballs and many different experiments because it's all a knowledge problem. Uh, everything that's within the s- sort of the possibility of, of our natural laws uh, can be done uh, as soon as we learn how to do it. And in that case, more people looking at it, accumulating knowledge and experimenting with different solutions. And that's the reason why most solutions to major problems fail, because they often come from politicians and governments who want to be ahead of the curve and point everybody in a certain direction. When it comes to climate change, it's it's obvious. They all want to pick their own favorite technology, be it uh, wind turbines or ethanol or, or nuclear power. And for some reason, it's dependent on where you are politically. The right seems to like nuclear power and the left seems to like wind turbines. I have no idea why. But they all want have one favorite and they want to subsidize that and to the detriment of all the other solutions. So opening up uh, 
the system is is the solution. Make sure that more people are involved coming up with different solutions, more trial and error, and then we'll get closer to a solution. Uh, when it comes to an externality like global warming, it's putting a price on carbon so that everybody has an incentive to come up from consumers and businesses to researchers and engineers to come up with their own solutions. But don't try to point them in a particular direction. Don't try to second guess who's most likely to come up with this technology, but let a, a thousand different solutions compete. So 30 years ago, we we had this discussion. I think Fukuyama was the reason we had this discussion about the end of history and liberal democracy kind of being the final political technology, I guess, and that we would all be open liberal societies going forward. And it has now seemed that that was extremely optimistic. And it also seems that we've created a system, and we've been discussing this, of openness that breeds closeness. And we see it kind of tearing apart possibly countries all over the world, uh, especially in the urban versus rural divide that you see not just in the United States, but you see in places like Hungary and Poland where that kind of openness seems to be mapping onto – or openness or lack of it – mapping onto the political spectrum. And there's been the revolt against the elites and the revolt against globalization, and there's a lot of people who do not want to seemingly live in an open society while the society is sort of careening toward that. So that leads me actually somewhat pessimistic, and I'm not sure if you're on the same boat about the kind of forces that we're experiencing now of whether or not we can maintain this kind of open liberal society that we've had for for quite a while now. Well, I, I might be a little bit more optimistic, uh, but first let me just defend uh, Francis Fukuyama, and uh, I don't know if he agrees with this defense, but I think that... Uh, People simplified his uh, headline, basically, about the end of, of history and uh, first simplified it and then exaggerated it. And, well, the we didn't run out of events. Things kept happening and people reacted against free market democracies. So apparently history is still on. I don't think that's what Fukuyama talked about. His point was that uh, it won't be possible to build another kind of system of institutions than um, free market uh, democracies uh, to create more wealth and more dignity for uh, people. It's You can come up with different systems, but they won't be able to deliver as much to as many people as open societies and, and free markets. Um, and But just because we can't move forward to another system doesn't mean that we can't, can't go backwards. And I think Fukuyama pointed that out as well, that uh, it's possible to drag the world back into history, back into uh, authoritarianism, wars and, and revolution uh, and so on. But it's not possible to create a system that solves more problem than this platform of openness, where as many people as possible are in a position where they can experiment freely. Uh, that's that's the key, and I still think that that's the case. It's 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 not possible to create more than than openness and freedom can create, because that's more eyeballs, that's more brains, that's more hard work, more trial and error, and more innovation. 
But it's still possible to to drag us back into the past and uh, create also new new forms of authoritarianism that drags us back uh, into into something else. But I don't, and, and and this is one of the reasons why I wrote this book that I think that this is a possibility. We are restless and we're uncomfortable with many aspects of openness. And there's always the temptation, especially in a time of crisis, to um, to look to the the great, the, the strong man, the big government, uh, and so on. So there's that possibility. But that, I don't think, it doesn't mean that those alternatives are more stable, that they are more likely to um, to last longer or to consume the world. Because I think it's always possible to point out the problems with openness and to promise everything and to uh, promise a safe pair of hands that'll give you everything that you don't find in, in an open society. But it's much more difficult to deliver. And this is one of the reasons why I think that People who, who, who assume that uh, just because we've got the Vladimir Putins and the Xi Jinpings and the, well, now the Viktor Orbans and the Nicolas Maduros of the world, it doesn't mean that they are the, the, the next step. Uh, it doesn't mean that they sit safely. On the contrary, I think that they are much closer to uh, the end of their careers and uh, those political systems because they constantly come up against um, discontent, against anger, against the, the lack of ability to, to deliver. Um, and um, therefore, I, I even though nothing is is for certain nothing is guaranteed we have to fight for freedom we have to fight for openness um they have a much harder time i think to fight for their uh, authoritarian versions of of government and that's the reason why they have to put people in jail all the time that's the reason why they repress free speech because they know that they wouldn't survive if people uh, had their way Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.